We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 3, and we shall read from verse 14. Revelation chapter 3, reading from verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And may the Lord again add his own blessing to this reading of his holy word. We come to give consideration now to the last of the seven churches in Asia, the messages that were sent from the head of the church himself to these churches throughout Asia. They are specifically targeted, as it were, we have every reason to believe that other churches in Asia were in a similar condition, even as the church here. But the head of the church himself is chosen to identify these particular seven churches and address them. But in doing so, uh, reminding us that what is stated is for our learning as well. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So every one of us here today are required to give attention to these verses. We cannot say they're irrelevant. They don't matter. I'll just listen to the minister and if he says something I agree with, fine. If he doesn't, it's not going to make any difference. 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And we have what he says. So we better hear it, and we better take it seriously, and we better lay it to heart. Now here we come to the church of the Laodiceans, and it in certain respects is in the worst condition of all the seven churches. We have been considering the state of the church in Philadelphia, and as I said, if we had the choice, it's the kind of church we would want to belong to. What comforting words the Savior has for this afflicted people, encouraging them in the witness that they have sought to maintain even though they are very weak and without much strength. When we come to this church, it's the kind of church we'd be thinking, I wouldn't want to belong to. Its state and its condition is such that it is here rebuked and is told the genuine truth regarding its condition from the head of the church himself. It is in such a low spiritual state that the glorified Redeemer says, I am ready to spew thee out of my mouth. I am about to spew thee out of my mouth. The Savior says, because thou art neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And what it properly means is, I am about to do this. I am about. I am ready to spew thee out of my mouth. Such is the condition. And yet, you see the tenderness, the compassion, the pleading of the Savior with his people, not neglecting them, not simply rebuking them and then abandoning them, but as it were, pleading with them, desiring change in the church here at Laodicea. That's one thing that when churches get settled down and established, they don't want. Whatever happens, we don't want any change. Whatever God requires of us, he better not disturb us. Whatever he has to say to us, he better not trouble us and annoy us. Well, if he doesn't, we're in a sorry state. Because what are we to hear the Spirit saying unto the churches, As many as I love, I rebuke. And I just don't rebuke them. I chasten them. I rebuke them and I chasten them. 
Do you ever go from the house of God, from under the ministry of the word, saying, well, I got a token today of my Savior's love to me because he rebuked me. What I heard today rebuked me. Furthermore, I got a token of the Savior's love to my soul. He chastened me. That word that I heard today was painful. It was sore. It was painful. Oh, it was hurting. I was sitting in that pew feeling very uncomfortable and very, very troubled because I was being rebuked and I was being chastised. And maybe we might be tempted to say, I'm having no more of that. As many as I love, that's to whom I sent my rebukes. And that's, those are they whom I chastise. It's amazing how people all seem to feel compelled Somehow or other, it's the thing to say, isn't it? I enjoyed that. That was very nice. That was very good. Give or say to anyone, boy, that was sore on me today. That was pretty painful today. But it was good for me and it was necessary because the Lord sent it. And here we have this message to the church and Laodicea. And it is a very chastening message and a message of very strong rebuke. And maybe sometimes the church of Christ has to sit back and take a look at itself. Is the Lord rebuking us? Is the Lord saying anything that should make us feel uncomfortable with ourselves? That should stir our consciences and require of us that we ask ourselves some searching questions. That's what we have here. Now let us see who it is who introduces us to this church and how he introduces himself. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of uh, God. Now, you just look, (coughs) for example, to the introduction, go back to the beginning of chapter 3, to the church in Sardis, and unto unto the angel of the church in Sardis, the church in Sardis. Verse 7 unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia. 
What does the Savior say to the church? Here, the seventh church in Asia. And to the angel of the church, all the lady of saints. It's their church. This is our church here in Laodicea. Belongs to us. We control it. We own it. We advertise it. We're proud of it. And what do we see? The Savior standing at the door knocking for admit, for admission. Because it's the church of who? The Lady of Saints. They've taken it over. It's theirs. They don't need Christ interfering. They don't need Jesus to be uh, telling them what to do. They don't need the glorified Savior to rule over them. They are full and complete in themselves. This is the sad state here of the church. But who is he who's speaking? How does he reveal himself? These things saith the Amen, the final word. The Amen, God's Amen. The closing word, as it were, the closing statement regarding the state of the churches, the Amen, and the faithful and true witness. The faithful. My, isn't that good? Faithful. What makes a man faithful? What makes a woman faithful? Their honesty. Their integrity. Their reliability. And here's the one who's addressing this church. I am the Amen. And I am faithful. Yes, you may not like what I'm going to say to you in Laodicea, but I'm going to say it. You might find it rather chastening and a very severe rebuke. And you might wish you weren't hearing it. And it mightn't bring me into love with you and make you adore me and appreciate me, but I'm going to be faithful to you. That's sadly lacking in the church today. Men go into pulpits and they look at their people and they see who's... Well, I better not say that today because look who's down there. Uh, I better just restrain myself and I better keep silent on that issue because look at that woman sitting midway down the church. That's what goes on. Men are not faithful to their consciences. They are not faithful to the word of God. They are not faithful to Christ himself. They do not speak as they ought to speak because they court the fever of those whom they address. It's more important 
to be liked than to be faithful. Here's the one who's speaking. However you people and Laodicea respond, I'm going to be faithful to you. And I am going to tell you the real truth about your condition. However you respond, that's your business, but I will be faithful. And not only that, I am a true witness. What I'm saying is as testimony. I will be faithful. I have been walking amidst the seven golden candlesticks. And I have been observing carefully the state of you people in Laodicea. Sometimes we tend to think when we refer to church, some cathedral, some uh, structure built with materials that we may assemble in. The church is people. The people are the church, not the building. And here the address is to the people, the members of the assembly, the visible church, and Laodicea. I am going to be faithful to you, can't you see? And Laodicea, when this is read out to them, some heads bowing down, What's coming now? Because they're going to hear the truth. The faithful witness is not going to overlook things. He's going to point out what's wrong. He's going to require of this church and Laodicea some reform. Now, are the people going to sit and say, well, since no one's really identified, we can all look at each other and we can all pat one another's back and say, well, brother, I don't know who that letter really was for. I suppose it must be for somebody, but it won't be me. Every man and woman in Laodicea had to inquire, how does this apply to me? And we may then consider what this faithful and true witness, Christ himself, has to say to the church here in Laodicea. Now, perhaps it might be helpful if we go back to the epistle to the Colossians, you'll see that this church is actually mentioned as Paul is concluding his his letter to the church in Colossae. In verse 12 of Colossians 4, we read, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. That's something to keep in in mind as we consider the state of the church in Laodicea. This man, Epaphras, laboring fervently. 
for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath great zeal. Now note those two qualities. Laboring fervently. And he has great zeal. For who? For you, that is, in Colossae, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hariopolis. So remember that when we come to consider what the Savior says to the church. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphas and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that likewise ye read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, Colossae was not a great distance from Laodicea. And it's very obvious there were communications between the churches. And the letter that Paul sends to Colossae has an application suitable and is appropriate to be read in the church in Laodicea. So he says, when you've read the letter that I sent to you in Colossae, take it and make sure it is read in Laodicea. Now, what will they be reading about? Epaphras, laboring fervently. Epaphras, who is great zeal for you. And remembering what the Savior is going to say to the church here in Laodicea about zeal and about their labor without fervor. Now, first of all then, we may consider the claims made by the church here. They are false claims because of their ignorance and because of their blindness, they don't even know their true condition. We may see here and learn the solemn lesson as to the power of deception. The awful power of deception deceived without any idea that it is so. Convinced this is my state when the opposite is the fact. Content to believe all is well when all is far from well. Oh, the awful, awful power of deception. Do we fear it? Can you and I say before God today, Oh, God, deliver me from being deceived. Leave me not to be deceived about my state. 
It is so serious. I'm on my way to eternity to meet God. I cannot be deceived. Be faithful to me. Blessed Holy Spirit, be faithful to my soul. Open my eyes. Open my understanding. Quicken my conscience. Give me light that I might know the truth. Here's a church, a body of people, sadly deceived. And what do we find the Savior saying? I know thy works. I he knows their works, but he knows more than that. I know thy, thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would that thou art cold or hot. So then, so then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot. There's a lot of people like that, isn't there? They can't give themselves 100% to the world. Their conscience won't allow it. Their upbringing, their background, the teaching they've received, the, the knowledge they possess, and their conscience doesn't permit them to go 100% off into the world. But at the same time, they cannot find the heart to be 100% for Christ. And they're trying to sit in the fence. And they're trying to serve God and mammon. And they're deceiving themselves. This is how it was here. I know thy works, and I know thy condition, and I would rather see you one thing or the other, but not this. Verse 17, because, notice those repetitions. Verse 16, so because. Verse 17, because. Because what? Because thou sayest. What does that mean? You make a profession. Isn't that what it means? This is your profession. This is what you say. This is what you claim. And what do you claim? What are you saying about yourselves? Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Don't you come to me here in Laodicea telling me I need this or I need that. I don't need anything. Away you go. I'm content with my state. I've arrived. I don't need anything more. I'm happy with my own condition. That's what they were saying. Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. 
What a state to imagine oneself to be in. What a way to come into the presence of God. You just imagine how, how these people must have been praying. You imagine if they did have a prayer meeting, the kind of prayers they'd be coming with before God. They wouldn't be asking him for anything because they don't need anything. They would just have to remind God how prosperous they were and You see how well we're doing, God. You see how prosperous we are. And they'd be holding up their annual statement. Look at all the money we have. Look at how wealthy we are. Look how we prospered. Thou sayest, Oh, if you kept quiet, it wouldn't be so bad. But I'm listening to what you say. And because you're saying falsehood, I have to rebuke you. Because of what you're saying, you need to be rebuked. Has God ever rebuked you for what you've said? Has Christ ever come and rebuked you For the misuse of your tongue, saying what you ought not to say. Here's the church needing rebuke because thou sayest. But I am the faithful and the true witness, so I'm going to say something different. And I... In faithfulness, I'm going to have to to contradict you. And I, to be faithful to you so that you know the truth, I'm going to have to say what you don't even believe to be true because you're blind and you're ignorant. Thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. Look at what they hear, and knowest not. And knowest not. Now, would you not think that it would be surely impossible for anybody of the Lord's people to be wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked and not know it. You ever meet a blind person anywhere and They're denying their blindness. They're saying, I'm not blind. They ask, well, why are you hobbling along with that white stick? Why have you got them dark glasses on if you're not blind? Why are you groping for the wall? It's obvious you're blind. I'm not blind at all, man. You don't know anything about blindness. I'm not blind. 
I'm just banging my head now and again off the pillars, but I'm not blind. I'm just falling in the gutter occasionally, but I'm not blind. That's what was wrong here. They were saying, we're not blind. They were. They were wretched. What does that word mean? You remember what Paul cried out? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me? This wretchedness clings to me, cleaves to me. I cannot be rid of it. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from what? This body of death, it was a punishment in ancient times that if a man committed a certain crime, the punishment was to take a dead body and bind it on his back. And he had to carry it. And as that dead body corrupted and decayed and putrefied, it began to affect his body. And the corruption and the putrefaction began to penetrate into his body. It was a cruel punishment. But that's what Paul's talking about. The burden of my sin. My corruption, it cleaves to me. It hurts me, it pains me, it's, it's a loathsome disease. Who shall deliver me from it? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? He could turn to Christ. I thank God through Jesus Christ. I shall be delivered. Now that's the condition. Wretched, with a stinking corpse, as it were, cleaving, hanging on to us. Wretched. And you people, and Laodicea, you don't know you're wretched? No, we're not wretched. We're rich. We're not wretched. We've lacking, we're lacking in nothing. What does the (coughs) faithful witness say? Thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable, miserable and poor and blind and naked. These are conditions that you and I know perfectly well. If we're in them, we will know about them. We will not mistake them. You see, those who are miserable, wretched in some of these countries where there's famine, where there's war, look at the state they're in, clothed in rags, starving in hunger. Do they come along when they're begging for help? 
And you say, ah, you poor soul. Here's a new coat for you. Here's a new frock for you. Here's some decent clothes for you. As a person that you're seeking to offer this charity to, they're going to say, what are you talking about? Look at my beautiful garments. Look at my rich clothing. This is a sorry state this church is in. The Savior says, I have walked among you. What a state you are in. And you don't know it. You don't know it. You know not. You're saying, we are this and we are that. And you are advertising yourselves as a very prosperous body of people. And you don't know what I happen to know. And I have to tell you the truth in this rebuking manner that you will do something about it. Now, if I were to ask, and we've said this before as we were looking at the churches, if I were to ask you honestly before God, What do you think is the condition, the spiritual condition of this church here in Grafton? What would you say? What would you say? Well, maybe you wouldn't go as far as the boasting claims of the church here in Laodicea. But Would we feel any sense of need that drives us in desperation to the throne of God, crying out, Lord, we here are poor, and we here in Grafton, we're needy. We need thee to come. We need a reviving. We need a quickening. We need God the Holy Spirit to come and work among us. We cannot be content as we are. We cannot be satisfied just to carry on opening and closing the doors and coming and going. Lord God, show us our condition. That's what these people needed to pray. Show us our condition. Show us what we really are. And that's what happens. Now, you will see that when the glorified Lord speaks to the church here and tells them of the reality of their state and condition, he doesn't just leave it there. He then counsels them. I counsel thee. I counsel thee, my dear friend. When last did you hear your Savior say those words to you? When last? 
I counsel thee. Do we want him to counsel us? Or do we think we're independent? We're independent men. We're independent women. We're independent young people. We're clever. We're educated. We're rational. We're very reasonable too. We're very wise. I counsel thee. Do we want his counsel? Or do we reject it? I counsel thee. I have this particular counsel for you in Laodicea. Do we even pray, Lord, counsel me, direct me, tell me where I ought to go, what I ought to do, what I ought to be. Tell me, counsel me, leave me not to my own devices. I counsel thee, and you cannot get better counsel than this. According to the first Sam, the man who is blessed of God, or the woman, is the one who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly world. Can you honestly say, sitting there where you are, I never do that. I don't take my counsel from the ungodly. They don't tell me how I should live. Oh, no. They don't tell me how I should dress. No, no, the the ungodly out there, they have no influence upon me. They don't tell me how I should order my home. No, no. I counsel thee. Do we know the difference between Christ's counsel and the counsel of the ungodly. When you read up some amazing matter and you say to yourself, isn't this wonderful advice? This would make me a better person if I did this and if I did that. These people have been to university and these people are scientifically minded, and they've, did a, they've done a lot of experiments, and all kinds of uh, things have been studied, and scrutinized, and analyzed, and now they're telling me, in their wisdom, this would be good for me. They must know. That's their counsel. Then we do we bother to find out where did they get this counsel from? What kind of a mind have they got? And then you just God is not in all their thoughts. God isn't even in their thoughts. Godless thoughts, spewing out their own wisdom, and professing Christians think, oh well. This is good advice. I'll be healthier. 
I'll be stronger. I'll be wiser. I'll be fitter. I'll be richer. I'll be more influential. I'll be happier, of course. I counsel thee. This is the best counsel we can have because it comes from the one of whom Paul tells us in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What good counsel the church was getting here. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. You could be rich. You're not rich, but you think you are. But you could be rich in the, in the proper sense. Oh, you've got earthly riches. The, the great city of the Laodiceans was a very, very wealthy city. A very wealthy society. With the result that uh, those, most of those who would belong to the church here were materially well off. It was a city of great trade, the wool industry, they had a special wool, pure black wool uh, that they sold and they made garments from and it was the pride of the citizens to go around in these uh, beautiful black garments made from their own wool. Uh, They were renowned as a city producing medicines and a particular eye salve, too, that was uh, distributed all over the all over Asia. Now here they are, and materially they're well off. We don't need anything. Maybe I might come to you and say, "Do you need anything materially?" No, I've got a house, I've got a car, I've got a job, I've, I've got this, I've got that got all sorts of material things. No, I can't say there's anything that I'm desperately looking for. Have you treasure laid up in heaven? Have you treasure laid up in heaven where moth and rust doth not corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal? You know, it's amazing. You watch some people. They're really proud. I've met people. And they are extremely proud of their car. Every time they take it out onto the road, they bring it back and wash the dust off. It's not dirty, but, you know, it's got to be spotless. Shining like it's in the showroom. And every year passes that they own it, they're idolizing it, looking after it. Then the day comes, they can't drive it anymore. So it's sold to someone else. He's not so fussy. And then a few years later, do you know something? You go along to the scrappy. You see a pile of rust. You think, I remember that car. It shone, it sparkled. It was the pride and joy of Mr. So-and-so. 
but moth and rust corrupt it, destroy it. You you can go, perhaps not much in Australia, but you certainly can in the UK and throughout Scotland, the tourists, it's amazing. Tourists come from all over the world to look at heaps of stones. And they pay big money to come to Scotland to see tumbling down walls. It's amazing what attracts human attention. And there they come to some, what once was a grand castle. Now there's a few crumbling walls. But of course, to attract the tourists, they put up some plaques. And they write out a history. What does the history say? Moth and rust doth corrupt. Time destroys it all. And Christians sometimes seem to forget that. You see, what was happening here and Laodicea is that the spirit of the society around them and the spirit of the world in which these people dwelt was impacting upon them. And their thinking was being influenced by the society around them. And those who did not know God, well, these were their idols. These were the trappings of success. And the church now here is beginning to think, well, we are rich. And we're increased with goods. They are, as it were, saying, well, we remember when we began very small. We didn't have very much. We weren't able to say then we're rich and increased with goods. But as time has gone on, we progressed. Things are different now. We, as they say here, are increased. Increased. I was informed that the last financial statement that was read out to the congregation here recorded biggest income of the congregation in its history. Now, I can't verify that, but that's what I've been told anyway. Because anyone who had an attachment to this congregation in the past knows that it had many a struggle and it wasn't rich. Not that we're rich now, but in a certain sense we can say we're increased. That's what the church was saying here. You see, we can look back and we see the evidence of our prosperity. And we can see the evidence that we've progressed. But not in the right way. The faithful witness says, hold on, hold on. You are poor and you're blind and you're wretched and you're miserable and you're naked spiritually. 
You don't know what your spiritual state is. You are looking in a carnal fashion to the externals. Now, they are important. We know that. But the problem is that these people were not examining themselves internally. They just looked on the surface. They looked in the externals. Well, we can see a change. We can see progress. We see evidence of development. Isn't that good? We see other little churches struggling. There's the church in Philadelphia. Well, they're poor and they're struggling. We're not. We've advanced. The faithful witness has to remind them Things are not as they appear to you to be. Therefore, you need to come to me for what you're lacking. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Remember what Job said, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Perhaps that's what this church was standing in need of. Testing and trying. To bring forth the gold of patience and grace. And the gold of the grace of humility. The gold of dependence upon Christ himself. But the problem is, you see, such is their condition, they do not even feel their need of Christ. What do we see the Savior doing and what do we hear him saying? Behold. Isn't that important? Take a good look, take note of this. Where am I? When you review your history in Laodicea, when you look at your accounts, when you calculate your prosperity, where do I fit in? Where am I in it? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's where I am. I stand at the door and knock. I remember just as a little fellow getting a little bookmarker, Bible bookmarker, at Sabbath school. And it was a little reprint of that famous painting by Holman Hunt, The Light of the World. If you haven't seen it, it's in the great cathedral in London and uh, it has been republished, reprinted, sent out all over the place, but I, I haven't seen it for a long time. But it depicted Jesus, the crown of thorns, standing at a door, and it's so long since the door has been opened, there's a vine actually growing over it, round it. 
And the Savior is depicted standing with a lamp in one hand, knocking at the door for admittance. Now, when it was painted by Hunt, someone came to him and they thought they would point out an error, something he'd overlooked in the painting. And they said, Holman, there's no handle on the door. His response was, that's the whole point of the painting. That door has to be opened from the inside. Now, I never knew what that, as a little fellow, the real significance of that painting. And then later I used to hear preachers talking about opening the heart's door to the Savior. I thought then, that's what it's all about. It's the Savior knocking at the heart's door for admission into the sinner's heart. Later, of course, I discovered that's not the point. This is the church. This is the professing church. The church that is neglecting Christ. That's what it's about. Christians, professing Christians, who have pushed Christ out. I understand on one occasion, I read that one occasion there was a father and his little son and they were looking at this painting. And the wee fellow said, Dad, why do you think nobody's opening that door? And he said, well, I really don't know. And then he said, suppose it's because they don't want to. And the wee fellow said, no, Dad, I I think it's because the people inside are so far back they don't hear him knocking. Isn't that a state and a condition to be in? That we don't hear Christ anymore. We hear the calls of the world for attention. We hear the demands all around us from every direction. Give me time, give me your energy, give me your devotion, give me your strength, give me your heart, give me your affections, give me, give me, give me. Where does Christ fit in? Where is he? Is he neglected? Is he shut out? Is he shut out of our homes? Is he shut out of our daily lives? Do we have to, when we get involved in certain activities, say, now, now, Jesus, you just stay there till I come back. I'm very busy today, so don't be interfering. I'll come back when I'm finished. I want to enjoy myself without any interference for a few hours. 
I stand at the door and knock. What a pathetic picture of the church in Laodicea. Behold I. Oh, is this someone knocking, wanting to become a member in the church in Laodicea? Knocking at the door of the Kirk Session? I'd like to become a member in your church. This is Christ. Behold, it is I standing knocking. There's no one listening. No one here. No one giving any attention. Ah, here's the Savior speaking. Out of love for a people who are not as they should be, as many as I love, I rebuke. I am speaking rebuke because I love you. Is the Savior rebuking you, my friend, because you've been neglecting him? Is he rebuking you today because you have become blind and ignorant to your own state, content that all is well, neglecting spiritual duties, neglecting the place of prayer, neglecting the word of God, but oh, so, so seriously, neglecting Christ. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Is that the case? Is he knocking to you today? And you're not listening. You've got yourself so far removed off into the world that you're too far away to hear. As the little fellow said to his dad, here is a church being rebuked. And it may well be, and it's nothing that we should abhor or object to if we would go here today from this house and say, well, before God, I've got to be humbly honest. My Savior rebuked me today, and I take it to heart. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Our gracious and eternal God, we give thee thanks. We have thy word. We have the blessed Redeemer himself speaking to us. Oh, may we lay to heart what he says. However deeply it may wound, however strongly it may rebuke, may we lay it to heart as the words of the loving Savior who loved his people, who loved his church and gave himself for that church. Bless thy truth. Bless us as a people. Remember us us as a congregation. Show us what we are and show us what we ought to be and pardon all our sins for Christ's sake. Amen.